You are now entering the transit zone. This case represents an unacceptable failure of the system. It should never have happened and it cannot be repeated. From the beginning, we have taken an extraordinarily cautious approach at the border. That is why we have required every returning New Zealander to go into a facility that we manage. That protocol remains. That is also why we required not one, but two tests to be undertaken of those in facilities. One at day three and one at day 12. That should have happened in the cases we learned about yesterday. It did not and there are no excuses. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. This is episode three in the Transit Zone Pandemic Primer podcast series, aimed at giving you more in-depth information about the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic so we can all better appraise the information our political and other leaders and the media are offering us and to give you a sense of the wealth of scientific research available about this coronavirus pandemic if you'd like to dig deeper. Podcast one was about the virus itself. The second episode was about the pandemic And this third episode in the trilogy will examine the response to the coronavirus pandemic in New Zealand, Australia and around the world. Plus, prospects for a vaccine, the elimination versus oppression debate, the apparent illusion of herd immunity, the chronic health effects of COVID and more about children, schools and the coronavirus. The first two podcasts of this trilogy were produced in early and mid-August, this final episode in the series in mid to late October 2020. As we publish this podcast, the USA is about to vote in its presidential and congressional elections. The pandemic, its widespread damage there, and what next, sit at the centre of those elections. In the Northern Hemisphere, the infections are surging again, and the absolute death toll grows even higher. The renewed waves of infection spread in the UK and the USA and across Europe are especially dire, but also in South America. In New Zealand, they recently had an outbreak on their North Island, mainly around Auckland, which triggered another swift and stringent lockdown to recover their prior status as a largely coronavirus-free nation. Here in Australia, the state of Victoria is in the process of easing its severe lockdown restrictions, including mandated face masks, after clawing back from over 700 new COVID infections a day to about an average of under five per day. But it's the detailed context around these headline numbers, including the mystery cases, that public health authorities are parsing intensively. But Victoria and New South Wales continue on an epidemiological knife edge as summer approaches and its citizens get out and about more with the understandable underlying strong desire to get back to normal. It's a risky phase, human nature being what it is, and normal just isn't on offer. There's no vaccine yet, and the timing of a durable effective vaccine is very clouded. In the global context, Australia and New Zealand are amongst the world's outliers with their infection rates, hospital and ICU coronavirus occupancies and their death tolls. But this pandemic story has no clear ending. 
we're all riding a narrative arc that disappears into a miasma of competing polemics and propaganda alongside that feverish scientific research, their studies and vaccine developments. Once again, our guide for these Pandemic Primer podcast is Australian-raised and now New Zealand-based epidemiologist Professor John Potter. John is Professor at the Centre for Public Health Research, Massey University, Wellington, as well as Professor and Senior Advisor, Seattle's Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre, where he was Director of its Division of Public Health Sciences. He's also Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at the University of Washington. From 2016 to 2019, he was Chief Science Advisor to the New Zealand Ministry of Health. John is one of the most cited scientific authors in the world and closely tracks global epidemiological research into the coronavirus. The Transit Zone Pandemic Primer Podcast. This time, the response. John Potter, welcome back to The Transit Zone and our final conversation in the Pandemic Primer Podcast Trilogy. Good to be here, Peter. A lot's happened since we had our initial conversation. An awful lot's happened in the last month or so, particularly in New Zealand where you are. We saw New Zealand as the shining light of the elimination, and I say elimination advisedly, of coronavirus in your jurisdiction. But of course, then we all saw it break out again. Take us through what happened. In many ways, this was expected and planned for. And that expectation remains in the way we handle this. An elimination strategy, we've talked about this before, is a process, not an endpoint. So although the borders are essentially closed, New Zealand citizens and residents have the right to return into managed isolation and quarantine, of course. Also, goods arrive by seaports and airports. Where there's movement and human activity, there's the possibility of a breach, and that's what happened, although the origin of the breach isn't established, and I'm fairly sure now that it won't be. The government responses and the community responses were appropriate. A great deal of tracing went on, including within and around a subcluster of people who were reluctant to be tested and isolated. A perimeter was established over an extensive geographic area, including cities beyond Auckland, because some of the people had gone out while not knowing they were infected. Cluster eventually evolved 179 individuals. From mid-August to mid-September, nearly 400,000 tests were undertaken across New Zealand, with a large majority of those in the Auckland area. Auckland went to alert level three with a lot of things shut down, not completely tight, went to alert level three on August the 12th, and the rest of the country went to alert level two. And then as the number of positive contacts dropped, New Zealand slowly relaxed back through the levels. And as of October the 7th, whole country's back to level one, no restrictions except at the border. The arc of this outbreak lasted two months. Mask wearing has become better socialized, though not routine. Recording our own movements using a QR-based app. Similarly, although as we switch back into a different level, some of that has dropped off quite a bit. Hygiene and awareness of others has improved. There remains, and 
we've talked about this before, there remains some danger of complacency as we relax into what looks like and, and largely is quite normal. So here we are, two months from the first outbreak to what looks like no cases in the community, still hypervigilance going on, still appropriate testing going on. But we seem to have gone twice through this process now, once for the whole country and then once again for Auckland. A few threads I want to pull there. Firstly, you didn't mention it, but it's worth emphasising that the South Island didn't have any of this outbreak. No, there are no cases in the South Island and there really haven't been cases in the South Island since the first long period. So we're into now five or six months without cases. This relates to the borders discussion here in Australia, which is a constant point of tension here, shutting off borders, WA particularly, Northern Territory, Tasmania, etc., and Queensland. There's still a lot of tension between New South Wales and Queensland over those borders being shut and the insistence by the Queensland Premier on certain epidemiological conditions, and we'll come to more of that later. But was the South Island sealed off from the North Island, for example? It was when Auckland had fairly tight travel restrictions. It was hard to get out of Auckland. You had to have a really good reason to get out of Auckland. And there was a whole lot of restrictions on flying out of Auckland, etc. So yes, there were fewer connections between the North and the South. Back open now. Does the arc of eight weeks surprise you? Was that anticipated? Was that about right? Maybe somebody knows exactly what arc you might expect here, but it really does depend on the size of the cluster and the size of the perimeter you have to put around it and the number of tests you have to do and so on. And all of those will determine the total length of time it takes to close something down. What did strike me was the scale of testing you mentioned 400,000 for the size of your population and the size of the cluster and the geographic confinement of that cluster. That seems like a lot of testing. It was a lot of testing. And it's part of the way in which this only part, there are, as we know, because again, we've talked about this, testing has become sort of fetish all on its own. And people think that's all we need to do. But it is a deep and wide part of what we need to do. You alluded to the QR app. Now, John, our app here in Australia has been a bit of a laughing stock and generally perceived as a failure, but you've got a different approach to that in New Zealand, which is a matter of people voluntarily swiping in different places they go. Just describe that a bit more on how it's worked. There's an app on your phone. There are QR codes on every business required by law. As you approach, there are some on the windows or doors or wherever they are. You turn your app on, you flash it, it takes a photograph and it keeps a record on your phone of where you went. And that information doesn't go any further than that at that point. But if there's a need for an alert, some individual case occurred and walked into some particular place, there's a warning system that allows people to then be zapped to their phone You were at such and such on such and such a date at such and such a time. That's not been used because we've had this single cluster, but that's a part of the backup. But the information itself as to where you went, I went, is simply on the phone. So that hasn't aroused that discussion we've had here about surveillance and Big Brother and people being watched all the time. Those sort of arguments haven't really been part of that in New Zealand. There's always some degree of grumbling about that sort of thing, but it certainly didn't get in the way of the instruction of this. It's a bit like a a group diary, isn't it, in a way? It's voluntary, you swipe, and you know that information's 
gone down somewhere and you know that you'll be contacted if in fact you were present, like here in Victoria, the Chadston butchery cluster, people spreading out from contact in that particular butchery and quite seriously for some of them. It's voluntary. It's a bit like a group diary. It's exactly like that. I mean, it's a personal diary, what you've got on your phone, and you can look at it. You can actually go back on your phone and say, oh, yeah, I went and had a haircut four days ago or whatever. Is it concerning to you that the New Zealand medical authorities haven't been able to identify just how this new outbreak occurred? There was speculation about, as you alluded to a moment ago, about incoming goods, perhaps in cool storage. I don't know what further knowledge about transmission or survival of the virus in cool storage and incoming goods is all about. But does it worry you that you weren't able, with all the genomic analysis and all the tracking and tracing, the point zero for this particular outbreak wasn't established? Yes and no. What really matters once you've got an outbreak is controlling it. So getting the source is useful for guarding against future breaches. The assumption was made in the end, because there was no clear evidence that it was associated with goods, the assumption was made that there was a breach by a person somewhere. And a lot of things got tightened up at airports and ports and more surveillance, more testing, etc. So the, the lesson from that outbreak was learned and responses were made and they were made on assumptions about the way in which it occurred. Seems reasonable. As we watched it here in Australia, there seemed to be that first gulp when you realised you had an outbreak, and then that seemed to break away a little bit. So how would you describe the course of that outbreak? As you observed it as an epidemiologist, we were expecting that ring fencing, the act very quickly as Adern did. Did you expect it to shut it down faster than actually happened? It's a crapshoot because you don't actually know how many contacts have been made. You don't know where the clusters have gone. You don't know where the chains have gone out from the clusters. So you put a big ring fence around it and you keep looking at contacts, looking at contacts of contacts and, you know, the chain out until you're fairly sure that you've got zero testing all around the perimeter. And that could take a short time or a long time, depending on how fast you get to move and how early you get the first case. Talking of a short time or a long time, I'm sure you've been watching what's been happening to us here in Australia generally and looking at the different states, but particularly where I am in Victoria. We've just come out of a pretty grim period. John, as you know, when I think we last spoke, we were nudging 800 new cases per day. We had a lot of people in hospital. We had a lot of cases, active cases across Melbourne, particularly and in the regions, and a Big variation in those new cases. The suburbs where I live, reasonable numbers but fairly low, and out in the western suburbs, very high numbers in the hundreds of new cases per day and hundreds of active cases. We've clawed back from that. Now we've, by dint of very stringent lockdown and wearing masks, which were then mandated, we've come right down. Parallel to the New Zealand experience, how have you observed us here in Victoria and what we've done? It's possible to partition the population into three groups. Those who are infected, those who are susceptible to becoming infected, and those who are immune. With a highly infectious disease like COVID-19, the spread can be very rapid because almost everybody is susceptible and the number of infectious individuals can grow rapidly, as we have seen and as you just described. So even now, WHO estimates that perhaps only 10% of the world's population has been infected much higher number than recorded cases, if you think about it. 
the rapid spread's further added to by the existence of individuals who are asymptomatic and therefore not aware. And of course, as we've seen, some people are so self-obsessed, their only concern is their own state, not of anybody around them. And we can be grateful that such people are in small minorities. In order to prevent spread, susceptible individuals have to reduce their likelihood of interacting with infected individuals. There are a number of ways to do that that include, as we know, social distancing, wearing of masks. However, when the number of infected individuals is high because there have been no control measures in place, or if, as a case in New Zealand, the desire was to prevent the number of infected individuals ever getting high, or as we saw in Victoria, the numbers rose rapidly, whenever those things occur, a community lockdown is a sensible strategy because then you're putting maximal distance, if you like, between infected individuals and susceptible individuals. Turns out to be the most effective strategy for both reducing the R0 to zero or close to zero, as well as the most rapid way to get the community open again and the economy back up and running. As you have seen in Victoria, this lockdown worked. It's brought the numbers way down. And it's important because Victoria tells us this. It's a sensible strategy even when the spread is already underway and expanding. The point is to reduce the interaction between the infected individuals and the susceptible individuals. And that means it makes sense that even if an outbreak is gaining ground, a lockdown can be an appropriate strategy. But it needs to be severe and it needs to be complied with in order to be effective. I really want to hear what you think about the whole notion of hotspots. You realise our Prime Minister at one point was really pushing the states to come up with a definition of hotspot because his driving ideology was to open up all the borders again and to come to some sort of static agreement for a dynamic situation about hotspots. Now, early on in our second outbreak here in Victoria, we had certain suburbs which our Premier Daniel Andrews tried to ring fence and tried to shut down those particular suburbs. That was a failure, very clearly a failure. It really got away from there. What is the whole idea of a hotspot? Is it a worthy notion? Is it a practical notion? How does it fit into the mosaic of prevention tactics and strategies epidemiologically? The idea of a hotspot at all? It's tricky. New Zealand used separate levels of restrictions successfully in the containment of the Auckland August Cluster. That cluster was controlled not only by restrictions within Auckland, but also with travel restrictions against moving out of Auckland. If you try to define hotspots in too tight a way, though, focusing on geographic areas that are too small or too close to other centres, the capacity for sustained interaction by travel makes this an extremely doubtful strategy. The key issue is how porous and interacting are the various communities that we're trying to separate from each other. So before declaring such a strategy, you'd have to be sure that it could be managed successfully, not routinely flouted by accident or design. That's very tricky when you're trying to separate suburb A from suburb B or trying to separate two closely communicating cities across a border or whatever. This is a tricky business. It worked in Auckland because they were able to think about where the boundaries were, but it did include other cities. There was a, an outreach to a, another city where a ring fence was also established briefly. It can be used, but it, it needs to be well thought through and extremely 
extremely well executed. The great lesson for us was what we call the Chadston cluster, which centred around a butchery there. We talked about how infectious this virus is early on in our discussions in podcast one and two, how infectious it is. One person took it out of Melbourne to a regional centre and away it went and got an alarm going in regional area of Victoria as well. So over and over again, we're seeing these patterns, aren't we, of sometimes particular people who are infected get away with it. They don't seem to infect too many other people. Then just one person gets in the car, drives, goes to a post office or something, and away it goes. It so easily happens. So as we're heading towards five, only five new cases is our next waypoint here in Victoria, We may get there, and it looks like we will get there, and then we'll move to, a, a, we hope, a prudent opening up again. But there's always that possibility that we'll revert, isn't there? We may go to 10 a day or even 15 a day after opening up again. How do you see that algebra of the pandemic, John? Honestly, we're, we're learning this as we go. It's not clear to me how to take that fully into account as though it were some kind of exact measure or exact science. One of the things to observe is that in counties in the United States where the colleges opened up again, the number of cases in that county went up. And the further away students were coming from, the more likely it was that it would go up. So there's a general thing about people moving from A to B increasing risk. But you're quite right. There are some people who are clearly super spreaders who trigger off a larger likelihood of developing the disease in a cluster. And those events, there seems to be a Pareto rule that goes with this. This is the 80-20 rule that 20% of people are responsible for 80% of the events. And that seems to what be what we're observing. The trouble is, of course, we never know which those people are, which is why you have to do the population-wide thing rather than, aha, we all need to focus on Joe or Mary. Compliance. This is something that you and I have tossed about through all these conversations. And compliance stems from a number of things. I notice even in the New Zealand situation, you had a small religious group who were resistant. We're seeing that happen here in Australia. We're seeing that happen on steroids in the United States. Both people gathering for worship. Even early on in the pandemic, I noticed that the Greek Orthodox Church opined that the blood of Christ in the form of the wine in the communal cup couldn't possibly be infected because it was the blood of Christ. So we've got a lot of religious belief and resistance to instruction not to gather for worship, etc. Then there are the other ideologies around freedom, around liberty, around the intrusion of the government into individuals' lives. All that's going on as noise and sometimes very loud noise in the background. We're certainly seeing it here in Victoria right at the moment. So I know that's not right in the medical epidemiological side of things, but it must be factored in, mustn't it? The level of resistance and, of course, what you and I have both acknowledged is a form of complacency. So how Mm -hmm. do you view all that? It's part of the picture, isn't it? Crazy resistance was actually fairly thin on the ground in New Zealand. There were businesses under stress and they expressed their pain. They at least had a legitimate claim on being perhaps more damaged than others, although you can take your bets on who's really at highest risk, people in nursing homes probably. You mentioned that there was some reluctance to be traced and tested existing in one particular group in New Zealand. But it was handled diplomatically, gently, with understanding, with encouragement, and not with heavy-handedness. Easy to say in, in hindsight, but, but it was actually done with forethought. So 
those are the kinds of approaches you have to build into public health responses. There have to be some acknowledgement that people are under stress or have particular beliefs that are not necessarily entirely coherent with the dominant picture in the community. Somehow you have to work with that. Let's take a much broader overview now of something that you and I have explored, but let's try and nail it down a bit more today in this conversation, elimination versus suppression. We've seen different versions of these words used around the world, haven't we? Suppression, United Kingdom, which we'll come back to a bit later when we talk about different countries and their responses and their successes or failures. In the United Kingdom, early on they flirted with a form, Boris Johnson and his mob certainly flirted with a form of herd immunity, and then they've flip-flopped all over the place, and now they've got very high rates of deaths and infection in that country. But here in Australia, we talked about suppression very early because there was an ongoing ideological discussion about livelihoods versus lives. And then the National Cabinet here in Australia reframed that slightly and talked about suppression of community transmission, which at the end of the day, in practical terms, doesn't seem that much different from that New Zealand version of elimination. Perhaps you differ in that view. But is there somewhere in the attitude and the way the tactic has gone about, is there a difference between suppression and elimination? And if there is a difference, John, what do you see that difference as? Earlier, we talked about the three groups, the infected, the susceptible and the immune. All strategies to control this particular pandemic have to acknowledge that reality. So elimination is a central concept in infectious disease epidemiology. It refers to the absence of a specific infection in a country or a region. It's a process towards a goal, not an achieved state. Criteria for elimination for a highly infectious disease, like measles in our past, make allowances for imported cases for an occasional outbreaks as long as they're stamped out within a short period of time. We've just talked about that in relation to the August Auckland cluster in New Zealand. Eradication, just briefly, describes a state where a disease becomes extinct worldwide, at least outside laboratories, and smallpox is an eradicated disease. When this began in December 2019, very short time ago, there was no established definition for COVID-19 elimination. The initial approach in New Zealand, which was formulated by Michael Baker and his colleagues, there's a terrific paper in the Medical Journal of Australia, specified a defined period of absence of new cases, say 28 days, twice the maximum of the 14-day incubation period was the way that was formulated. This achievement requires a highly efficient surveillance system, case numbers drop to low levels, several days without new reports. Elimination might take weeks or even months to achieve and could involve moving in and out of community restrictions depending on success, as we've seen in practice and as was predicted in the original formulation. For this pandemic, the major components we've already talked about, they're consistent with those for pandemic control generally, border management, case identification, contact tracing, disease surveillance, including widespread testing, Physical distance and movement restriction at various levels, depending on what you're doing, up and down, all the way to a full lockdown. Public communication to improve hand washing, cough and sneeze etiquette, mask wearing, physical distancing. Protecting vulnerable populations, really important piece of this. And then improving health system capacity, 
that could be ICUs, ventilation, etc. And important in all of this, and I'm saying it last, but it's way up there on the list, protecting healthcare workers because they're the ones who are most exposed. Elimination requires a very strong and competent public health infrastructure. Success requires major emphasis on border management to keep the virus out, case and contact management, etc. If started early, these measures can be sufficient for elimination without even the need for lockdowns. That's what was managed in Taiwan. In New Zealand, as the pandemic emerged in 2020, in Australia, as the pandemic emerged in January 2020, Both implemented initial responses that were based on national influenza pandemic plans. Before the first cases arrived in late January in Australia, late February in New Zealand, there was just a brief moment to learn from what the pandemic had done and what it was doing in the Northern Hemisphere and thus to tweak and broaden a spectrum of response strategies. China had a severe one, some would say draconian, response that showed the infection could be eliminated even after widespread community transmission. Other Asian countries were successful, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Vietnam, South Korea, and some of that success, and this is really important, stemmed directly from their experience with the 2003 SARS pandemic and the resultant playbooks that have been derived from that. That's the approach to elimination. Mitigation, the containment strategies of East Asian countries were markedly different from what we saw in Europe and North America. Those countries acted as though they were dealing with a severe seasonal influenza pandemic or epidemic and aimed to mitigate the effects by slowing the spread enough so that cases emerged at a slower rate, the flattening the curve that we heard about a lot. And what was the purpose of that? It was to ensure that health services didn't get overwhelmed. These strategies were promulgated with the joint intentions of reducing caseloads well below the capacities of health systems minimizing cases and deaths, but no expectation of actually stopping community transmission. Mitigation aims to allow the infection to pass through society in a controlled manner. A little hubris here. With or without the benefit of a vaccine. As the pandemic progresses, responses may become more stringent, more disruptive, and include, as we have seen in these places that have originally gone for mitigation, intermittent lockdowns, school closures, limits on gatherings, as well as the appropriate things about masking and distancing and hygiene and so on. Just an aside, the debate about strategies in high-income countries really identifies the tension between those who value human lives and well-being most and those who value money most. Oddly, the clash of values isn't informed by the available data. As Prime Minister Ardern pointed out in New Zealand, and she said it over and over again, the best result for human welfare is also the best results economically. And the evidence for that can be found. There's a nice paper in Medical Journal of Australia by Tony Blakely and colleagues showing that New Zealand's economy has apparently bounced back rather better than Australia's initially anyway. And they also comment that Australian states with better strategies also were doing better economically and socially. And there are other analyses comparing New Zealand with the UK that draw similar conclusions. Most low and middle-income countries can do little to manage the pandemic except apply limited mitigation. Vietnam is a notable and highly successful exception. They implemented those stringent controls, quarantine, contact tracing, border controls, school closures, and traffic restrictions very early with considerable success. Faced particularly with the evidence of success in the Asian countries, New Zealand chose elimination and Australia 
although needing to pay attention to differences across state government, chose, as you just said, what is now referred to as aggressive suppression. Elimination is still possible, but the political language is cloaked and the targets are fuzzy. These are not really different concepts. New Zealand had a number of factors in its favour in pursuing elimination, small population, decisive, evidence-informed leadership, general lack of overcrowding, including on public transport, island nation that's not a major transit hub, rapid awareness and acceptance of the implications of the growing numbers in other parts of the world, a population that understands team sports and how to play by the rules. Elimination's a major departure from pandemic influenza. Instead of letting the virus in and dealing with its presence in varying degrees of stringency and success, elimination starts with border control. Island states that are not major international hubs have an advantage. With borders shut, the degree of stringency around control is aimed at rapidly extinguishing change of transmission. Again, what we've seen. The most severe form, if you like, of elimination in zero transmission is the exclusion approach that a bunch of Pacific islands took. As we saw with Australia and New Zealand, countries can change their strategies, but sometimes not very briskly or with full attention to the data. Sweden originally went for a version of mitigation and the goal was herd immunity. Later, after a massive initial surge and perhaps some better understanding that herd immunity is a bridge too far, and we can come back to that. They move to implement loose suppression that relies on a deep and wide community grasp of how to control individual and collective behaviour. But they have paid a huge price for this. As we survey the rhetoric around the world around things like elimination and then aggressive suppression, but then edging into the what we mainly hear on the right, the ideologies about alarmism, outright denialism about the pandemic itself. And then lurking beneath all that, I wonder if you agree with me, there seems to be that reversion over and over again to the idea of herd immunity, that in fact, at the end of the day, we can't really get rid of it. We're just going to have to cop it, get out there. Of course, we're seeing the muscular version of that right now with Donald Trump and his cult talking about facing the virus. That's what leadership's all about, getting out there, being warriors, facing the virus. And that's really been picked up very strongly in the United States in certain quarters. Not by everyone, of course. Others are still wearing masks and shutting down and trying to look after their kids going back to school for face-to-face teaching. So it's very divided in the United States. But we're seeing that sort of ideology elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It does keep coming back, John, in my mind at least, to the idea that herd immunity is still a possible pathway. Do you agree with that? And what are the major arguments against herd immunity, quite apart from the huge death toll, which even the most avid advocates of herd immunity begrudgingly acknowledge, yes, it does involve a big death toll. But aren't there other arguments against the herd immunity line that go to, is it even possible, for example? Yeah, that's a good place to start. Herd immunity is a concept that says when the number of immune individuals reaches a certain threshold in the community, there will be too few individuals to sustain chains of infection. So think about a virus in an infected person surrounded by immune people. It's got no place to go to infect someone new. Herd immunity is a useful concept when the vast majority of the population is immunized against a particular microbe. This is how we usually control a variety of infectious diseases. Vaccinate 95% of children and the few that are left 
say, not immunized because they've got an immune deficiency disorder or they're part of some resistant cult. Nonetheless, when down to those sorts of numbers, those individuals are very unlikely to be exposed to a carrier because everyone around them is immune. This is doable with that kind of extensive immunization program, but we don't have a vaccine. You could imagine that it's possible to achieve 70% or more people being infected and subsequently becoming immune. And that assumes that we're willing that 70 plus percent of the world be infected. You already mentioned this. I'm going to put some numbers on it. That says 5.5 billion people infected. Minimally, we would expect 55 million deaths to follow from that. And that assumes that the world's entire healthcare system isn't so overwhelmed that the death rate doesn't rise. It also assumes, and this was implicit in your question, I think, it also assumes that being infected confers immunity, which has not yet been shown to be true, and indeed shown in some cases not to be true. People have been infected for a second time with this different strain from the first infection. We don't know how widespread that is, but we know what happens. Even at 70%, what herd immunity in a community might guard against is the introduction of a single infected individual. But as we're already seeing, the clusters and the chains of infection are currently all over the place where control has failed. More than 200 clusters in Paris alone at the moment. So to be effective, we might need even 80 to 90% immunity. And that is an even more difficult problem with an even higher death count. There's a new variant of this proposal afoot from a right-wing US think tank and endorsed in a variety of places, and it's getting a lot of push in the UK. I will say that one of the signatories is the Reverend Booker Clown of Trump University, so not everybody who signed this is serious, but it's advocating herd immunity for the young. It's a combination of bad science, a total lack of awareness that communities are comprised of people of all ages, not Thatcherite individuals, not age-defined clusters, and not to mention the fact that compassion is missing here entirely. It's depressing. One nice comment came from William Hanage at Harvard University. He said, this proposal is like putting all the antiques into one room in the house and standing guard with a fire extinguisher while you fan the flames for the rest of the place. And that's exactly what we're talking about here imagining that somehow we can separate and protect older, more susceptible individuals while letting the herd immunity develop in young people. It's depressing stuff. Could I take a slight detour? Because it just seems the right moment to do it. While you talk about all that, very little discussion going on, though we see the odd article in the newspaper about it, are the chronic effects of this pandemic the brain fog, the long-term outcomes of this disease. We're hearing little bits and pieces about it, the people who have got chronic fatigue syndrome. And these are quite young people in many cases. The ravaging of people's lungs, their brains, their livers, their hearts, etc. The chronic effects of the pandemic don't seem to be factored in by that particular argument that you and I are examining now much at all. So what's emerging now more clearly as the chronic effects of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic? Some are beginning to call it long COVID and refer to the misery of the long haulers. There are many aspects to this persistence of symptoms after the diagnosis. 
We initially assumed this was just an acute illness. It turns out to be not true. Although we lack large, robust studies of the phenomenon, there's enough coherence to the current evidence to establish that long COVID is a real phenomenon. And for many, the burden of infection with SARS-CoV-2 does not end with discharge from hospital, with the disappearance of the virus, with the fading of the acute symptoms. Essentially, all the studies so far are individual case reports and collated case reports, both from clinician scientists and from patient groups, which is really important. So we don't have an accurate measure of prevalence, but we do have a serious and clear grasp that this is a real phenomenon. The earliest reports were actually anecdotal and a product of good non-specialist reporting. The first one I know of, anyway, turned up in June this year in the Washington Post, and it described multiple long-duration cases. Individuals had spent more than 60 days with serious symptoms. And then there was another comment in The Guardian in July this year, where they reported on a study that's taken off in St. Vincent's in Sydney, where they started with about 100 apparently recovered patients who agreed to be involved, and they're undergoing tests every three months to determine whether it's associated with lasting effects on immune system, blood, lung, gut, brain. There aren't any data yet, but Associate Professor Gail Matthews already made the public comment that about one-third of the study group are showing symptoms three to four months after being initially infected. And she noted that of the 10% who were admitted to hospital, around 80% still had some symptoms. There are several other studies across UK, Europe, US, the most comprehensive so far involving about 150 patients in Italy who were assessed at a mean of 60 days after symptom onset, and only 18 of them, so that's 12.5%, were completely free of COVID-19 symptoms. 32 had one to two symptoms and and more than half of them had three or more. And the prolonged symptoms included fatigue, breathing difficulties, joint pain, chest pain. There's a whole series of studies now underway. There's one in the UK of 10,000 patients. There's one in Reggio Emilia in Italy of about two and a half thousand people. A comment on that last one, almost half the patients, same story, say they are not cured. So from these observations, the symptoms seem to cover a wide range of non-specific to some particular and rare manifestations. They include pain, fever, brain fog, repeatedly described, loss of the ability to concentrate, shortness of breath, heart arrhythmias, and high blood pressure. But also included is Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a neurologic syndrome, which is already known to be one of the late complications of infection with Zika virus and Campylobacter, which is a bacterium. It may be relevant that a study of 78 medical personnel over 15 years showed that SARS-CoV-1, the coronavirus that caused the SARS pandemic in 2003, also provides evidence of persistence of long-term consequences, particularly lung damage and bone damage in that particular instance. So we know how some of this is is occurring. Tissue damage consequent upon invasion, virus replication, and tissue destruction. So in the brain, you end up with encephalitis and then the heart myocarditis, and that gives you long-term potential for long-term consequences. The immune response involving extensive systemic release of the, of the cytokines, the cytokine storm, which we've talked about, that damages 
microvessels, small blood vessels, and you get clots, thrombosis. Then you end up with things like stroke and myocardial infarction, especially if they're not particularly marked. I mean, if they're not lethal strokes, you can end up with this damage further down the line. A central issue with the pandemic, we've talked about this before, highly infectious, capable of airborne spread. It's an illness that isn't so devastating that many infectious individuals cannot mix with the susceptible. It's especially spreadable by the young. It's an infection fatality of between 0.5 and 2%. Let's say less than 1%. Much more lethal than 10 times, 20 times more lethal than seasonal influenza. Increasingly lethal with age and widespread comorbidities. Many who advocate routine responses to this, or worse still, the herd immunity response to this, don't grasp how different this virus is. And as what I've just been talking about makes clear, there's a seventh feature that can be added to that list that I just gave you, a wide spectrum of multi-organ symptoms that persist long after the virus has been cleared. We keep talking about its infectiousness and early on in our discussions, I think it was podcast one in this trilogy, we talked about R0 and that epidemiological aspect of it. But biologically, this virus, as we get to know it better and better, unfortunately, it's very infectious in terms of the whole body. I think I remember correctly, John, you talked about it as a, a vascular virus. It seems to reside and interact negatively, obviously, uh, best with human blood vessels. So that enables it to pop up almost anywhere within the human body. And that's exactly what we're seeing, isn't it? Yes. And one of the things to remember is that at least an important part of the way this virus gets in is via what's called the ACE2 enzyme, ACE2 receptor. And there are ACE2 receptors all over the body. They're in blood vessels, they're in the liver, they're in the kidneys, they're in the, the gut, which means the virus, when it bumps into one of these, can glom onto that and then find its way into the cell and can use that. The virus doesn't care what cell it's in to reproduce itself, right? It just gets into a cell, it hijacks the cell machinery, and the cell machinery then makes more copies of the virus, and then the virus bursts out, destroying the cells. You can see that if that's occurring all over the place, then you're getting damage in your blood vessels, in your kidneys, in your gut, and in your lungs particularly, as the virus kind of bursts its way out, we talked about this before, it's like a bunch of little aliens kind of crashing out through the surface of the cell. That cell's destroyed. Repeat that story over and over and over, you get a lot of tissue damage. And that's when you get an immune response and sometimes an overimmune response because this is a whole inflamed area. So the combination of viruses all over the place replicating rapidly and turning the whole set of tissues, lungs and other places, into very messy bits of tissue damage, coupled with the immune response. And you can see that it does a lot of damage very rapidly and is able to replicate rapidly because it can do so in a bunch of places. It gets coughed out and away it goes in the aerosols to the next person. You're in the transit zone for the third of three Pandemic Primer podcasts, I'm Peter Clark with Professor John Potter in Nelson on the South Island of New Zealand. Last week, I explained that the number of COVID patients going into hospital had doubled in a fortnight, and I explained that the rate of infections was climbing steeply. I said that we faced the sad reality that on these figures, we could expect many more daily deaths. And so that's why 
We announced a package of restrictions and stronger enforcement last week. Very shortly, we're going to be talking about immunity generally and vaccines. Obviously, the big question on everyone's mind, particularly here in Australia, where we've just had a budget come down, which quite blatantly assumes a vaccine coming within at least the near or midterm future. But before we talk about vaccines and immunity, let's just revisit this whole idea of the great contrast between various nation states around the world, the United States, and less talked about for some reason, in the United Kingdom, where things are just horrific, really, to my mind. The number of aged care deaths in the United Kingdom, historically and up to this day, have been just eye-wateringly bad. And of course, all the flip-flopping politically, Boris Johnson, etc. We've seen Brazil and another demagogue, Bolsonaro, and the huge death rate and infection rate there. And the United States just keeps on going. Of course, in the middle of an election, both for the Congress and for the presidency, we're seeing extraordinary levels of propaganda and arguments about the pandemic itself. It sits at the centre of that election. So how do you view all those variations around the globe in terms of the success or otherwise? We're seeing an upsurge in France again, for example. But you mentioned Vietnam. And I also add to that list of success stories in Asia, Thailand. So... Just taking that broad view again, John, epidemiologically, and I understand all the variables of population and rates of development, etc., how are you viewing these extraordinary differences, particularly in those Anglosphere countries like the United Kingdom and the United States, which, let's be honest, are in deep trouble, aren't they, with the pandemic? That's absolutely perfectly true and sadly true. I don't think we understand all of the factors, although you've obviously adumbrated a number of them, including the quality of leadership and the timeliness of the response and so on. So let me start with the timeliness of response. Vietnam has a border with China and had the experience with the SARS pandemic in 2003. They responded rapidly with the things we've talked about, border controls, testing, tracking, quarantine, etc. Thailand seemed to have behaved with similar alacrity. In contrast, The U.S. went into acute and widespread denial, no functional national policy. The U.K. similarly dithered and early on flirted with herd immunity, as you already mentioned. They implemented useful responses late. They made only a poor attempt at information and education regarding severity and the need for collective community action. New Zealand leadership waited just long enough to get the majority of population up to speed on the severity of the problem and the best response to it, a hard lockdown for four weeks. Leadership has still not emerged in the UK or the US. In the UK, John, for example, you're getting that response from Boris Johnson, which just gobsmacked me, where he paid for half of people's lunch for a while there to get people out and about again and into the restaurants again. And of course, that turned out to be a disastrous tactic. Right. Because of the infectiousness we've just been talking about and the total failure to understand how infectious it is and what the best measures of control are. Mortality is partly a function of the age of the population. So there's a higher mortality early in Italy because the initial outbreak was amongst an older population. You mentioned the nursing homes in the UK. Let me also mention nursing homes in Sweden. Sweden, as we know, formally adopted the notion of doing herd immunity, and they've lost 7% of their nursing home population to this virus. Mortality is also a function of an overloaded health system. So once again, going back to the US, 
parts of the US are unable to cope with the caseload and some cases don't even have essential supplies. There was a problem to begin with. And in some places, it's persisted. PPE for workers, oxygen for patients. It's now clear that once the pandemic has spread wide enough with no attempt at a hard lockdown, there are going to be multiple clusters. There'll be multiple clusters and chains. And even if some of those fade out, they run into low numbers, they'll still be more susceptible somewhere else. And there'll be a chain that will run into those. As we already mentioned, Paris has now got a whole bunch of these clusters. So there's this over-dispersion notion that once you've reached a particular point, it becomes very difficult to institute anything other than an acute lockdown. And that's just not being bought anywhere. And then finally, some low and middle income countries that we discussed don't have infrastructure to manage even a suppression policy. But I will say that, you know, a lot of things happened in Africa and Africa doesn't have a huge burden. It looks, it's always tricky because you don't know exactly how accurate the numbers are. But the burden may not be as high in Africa. There's been a big response. There's been introduction of widespread testing. There's been an improvement in understanding of hygiene and control and so on. So we'll see how that breaks out. Let's talk about the vaccine. That's the thing, isn't it? The vaccine is the hook on which we're hanging so many of our hopes (laughs) to get out of this pandemic, uh, not only here in Australia, but around the world. And of course, Donald Trump, as we know, is using the vaccine as a, as a lure for his re-election and promising people, over-promising people. And a little later, we'll talk about the institutions there, the FDA and the CDC. But the vaccine, we've got so many people working on a vaccine, different sorts of vaccines, vaccines which may or may not address the whole spectrum of this particular disease. Summarise for us what we're seeing in terms of vaccine development, how effective they might be, And, of course, the big question, which you can't answer any better than I can, I know, but perhaps a better insight into it, how soon might a vaccine emerge? Let's start with a a little bit of basic here. A vaccine's aimed at stimulating both memory and executive parts of the immune system. So it involves exposing the immune system to a part of the virus. For the SARS-CoV-2, the major attention being paid to the spike protein that's key to the entry in a cell, as we were just talking about, or a Sometimes they use an inactivated virus or a weakened live attenuated virus. All of these strategies have been used in various times in the past in order to produce an immune response that will then rise to the challenge and rapidly eliminate the real virus when the person's exposed. Sometimes other viruses or virus-like particles, they have the virus capsid but no RNA And this is actually how the human papillomavirus vaccine was developed. Sometimes those boxes, either the box that the virus came in or a different virus, are used to deliver the antigen using adenoviruses, cold viruses, which Russia and China do, could be complicated in individuals who have immune responses to the delivering harmful virus. So you could have a problem there. RNA viruses are a recent development. The genetic information for the antigen that stimulates the immune system is delivered inside a lipid nanoparticle rather than the antigen itself. And then the cell makes it and then you get the immune response to it. And the American and the German vaccines are using different parts of the SARS-CoV-2, different protein parts, but using the RNAs. There are now several hundred vaccines in various stages, most in early stages. And 
traditionally, the early stages involved choosing the modality for a vaccine, establishing its safety, trying doses, etc. And often that takes a long time. But because a lot was known about the SARS-CoV-1 virus, and because a lot of vaccine technology in relation to viruses has advanced rapidly, the stages of the vaccine production have been cranked up quite a lot. So what's looked for is evidence of robust production of neutralizing antibodies. So that's what you do in phase one. You're looking for an effective dose to turn on the immune response, and you're looking for safety, obviously. Phase two, you get larger number of participants, including some higher risk individuals usually, but you're still looking to determine a dose needed to get a robust response and safety. So the Moderna vaccine and the Oxford vaccine produce neutralizing bodies that look a lot like those seen in patients who recovered from the infection with the real virus. There are now 10 vaccines in phase three trials looking at efficacy. So it's asking the question, does the vaccinated group show a lower proportion of infected individuals than the placebo exposed group? Oxford group's aiming for 53 thousand in their phase three trial conducted across a whole bunch of countries, actually, UK, US, Brazil, South Africa, Japan, Russia. They reached about 18,000 by mid-September. Moderna is recruiting 30,000 for a phase three trial across, right across the US. By mid-September, they'd recruited 23,000, but they were having some trouble recruiting minorities. The German vaccine, Pfizer-BioNTech, is using an RNA that encodes the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. So it's a smaller piece. And they're aiming to recruit 44,000, and they've already recruited about 30,000. The rapid pace, as I mentioned, of vaccines against this virus has been enabled by prior knowledge of the role of the spike protein in coronaviruses and evidence that neutralizing antibodies are important for immunity also seen substantial advances in the relevant technology. And we've known about the sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus since very early, because the Chinese published it very, very early. So one piece of good news is that the low genetic diversity, that's that's the low mutation rate in SARS-CoV-2, suggests that the current candidate vaccines will pretty much match all of the circulating variants of the virus. The virus is not varying so much that it gets outside of the way in which we could respond to it with a vaccine. People have talked about challenge trials. So there you would do the placebo versus what you hope will be an effective vaccine. And then you literally expose your two groups to the virus. Nobody's done that so far. WHO has promulgated a set of ethical principles for such challenge studies, but nobody really wants to go down that track, I don't think. WHO have also proposed a goal, global public good, and a set of principles for the development and distribution of the vaccine. So they argue for a focus on human well-being, all human beings having equal moral status. I know that's a bold thought for some people. Global equity within nation equity, honoring those at highest risk and having a transparent process. So they're very high level. And the interesting thing will be how to implement those sorts of high-level principles actually on the ground as we distribute this vaccine. And John, talking about distribution, something you haven't touched on directly yet is the state in which a particular vaccine may have to be kept for distribution. Very cold, for example. Yes. 
that's one of the key problems in what we're going to do with all of this. Vaccines have always needed a cold chain. That is, they need to be kept cold from production to delivery, from facility to clinic. For most vaccines, that cold chain can be maintained using fridges. However, for the RNA viruses that we're talking about here, the need is for a cold chain that's at minus 60 to minus 80 degrees Celsius. That's not a routine freezer. That's a lab freezer. That means we need an extensive infrastructure across trucks, planes, warehouses, etc. And we need special cold-resistant vials to live inside those freezers. That particular one, it just adds to the interesting problems that remain in relation to distribution. It's not just a matter of it rolling out of the lab being proven in, in a clinical trial. There's just a huge infrastructure problem that rolls out from that. I guess the other aspect, as lay people like me think about the impending vaccine, and we hope there'll be an impending vaccine, is how long immunity will be provided by a particular vaccine. And I guess the vaccine we might happen to be getting here in Australia, is it going to be effective across the spectrum and for how long? And of course, what alarms us is that we're seeing reports now that some people catch the disease and then are reinfected. What do those reinfections tell us about the status of immunity for SARS-CoV-2? Until we have a very clear idea of what frequency that's occurring, we won't know. If it's a rare event and immunity is, is reasonably robust over a long period of time, and remember that there are several stages of immunity. One is the, the development of early antibodies, and then there's the, the issue of ending up with the immune system remembering that particular virus and then having the capacity to rapidly respond with freshly made antibodies when it sees it again. And that's how vaccines work, basically. You're priming the immune system to work somewhere down the line. Until we've, we've seen how well this vaccine works, we won't know for sure exactly how robust the immune system is, even in the development of the, of the early stages. And then you've got the interesting problem of how long it might last. Yes. We don't know. And the scale of this, you talked about the cold chain infrastructure. I'm sitting here, my mind boggling slightly, John, to be honest, thinking about how many doses are going to be needed for the whole world. It's an extraordinary undertaking, isn't it? And we're seeing in the capitalist United States all sorts of things going on, not only with the vaccine, but with things like Regeneron, and we'll come to Trump in just a moment. Will this vaccine be available in the way who advocates and envisages it's such a big scale around the world. We're going to need about 16 billion doses for the whole world. So at the moment, the world produces a bit over 6 billion doses of the flu vaccine every year. So this is a problem three times that size just for this, added to what we already do with influenza. There's a problem of the way in which the vaccine will be developed by the individual companies. And it's important to note that at least some of the people who are producing these vaccines have never licensed or distributed or developed the large-scale production. So you've got to imagine that that's got to be, as it were, socketed in to the back end of the lab-produced system. First of all, you've got to have a major 
set of production facilities as well as all the legal and, and other apparatus that has to be put in place to license this stuff. So the timing is extremely fuzzy at the moment. We don't even know whether the early vaccines are going to work. And it's always worth remembering that first-generation vaccines are not always the best. So we've sometimes developed second and third generation vaccines that, that have either been easier delivery, fewer side effects, whatever you want. And also we know from just getting out there in the population in that first distribution, just how effective they are. Right. Yeah. That's the in real life challenge test, I suppose. Yes, exactly. At the end of the trials, we will at least have some decent idea because, of course, they will wait to see what the efficacy is in the vaccinated group compared with the placebo group. And we'll have some idea that this improves the protection against the virus by some percentage. And the sort of efficacy you initially might be running for is 50 or 60%. So you're not saying you're going to protect everybody. You're going to get a considerable reduction in the vaccinated arm versus the placebo arm. I'm wondering if one of the sleeper issues here isn't something you and I have just nudged about a little bit, and that's children and COVID. I'm reading all sorts of articles about emerging syndromes in children with those infected by the disease. Of course, politically and culturally, we're talking about schools and face-to-face teaching. We're talking about the plight of teachers who have children coming to school who may be infected. You talked in an earlier podcast about the heavy viral load that's been detected in children who are asymptomatic, but apparently carrying the COVID viral load in their noses and their throats. So children seem to be a bit of a sleeper issue. I don't think we yet know enough about all that, do we? There does seem to be some clear evidence that children have some sort of status that gives them some sort of immunity at a certain age. But what are children? What age do we say children are? And when do they become adolescent? When do they become adults? So that's a whole sleeper issue, isn't it? The status of children? I agree. Children seem to be as you've said, less likely to be infected or at least to suffer less serious disease. Those under 10 in many places seem also less likely to be sources of spread, but that isn't true everywhere. It isn't true in India, for instance. Adolescents also seem to be a lower risk of serious disease, but seem just as likely as adults to be the source of infection. There was a study of about 300,000 young people very, very recently in the U.S., that showed the incidence among adolescents was about twice as high as the incidence in younger children. But minorities and those with existing comorbidities were increased risk at all ages. So as an aside, it's notable that the White House pressured the CDC successfully to alter the title of a paper that was reporting on this, this study I'm just talking about, to replace children and adolescents in the title with persons, making it difficult for people to actually find that paper if they were going to do a search on children and adolescents. It's an extraordinary thing to be doing. A study in India tested more than half a million kids' contacts associated with approaching 100,000 cases showed that children of all ages can be infected and can spread the virus, and young cases and deaths weren't rare. So in general, the kids show lower susceptibility, possibly a lesser role in transmission than adults, and possibly a higher viral load. They've got some interesting aspects of the biology. They have lower density of the receptors in their respiratory tracts. So ACE2 is in lower numbers, if you like, in their respiratory tract. 
people wonder whether if kids are exposed to colds and have colds all the time, whether there's some cross-reactivity between the immune responses to the cold, both antibodies and T-cell responses may be partly protecting them against developing a serious infection with SARS-CoV-2. There's a particular T-helper cell immune response in children that is protective and it's associated with an eosinophilia, which usually we associate that pattern with allergies, but it looks like it's part of the protective effect here. And kids get less severe cytokine storms generally. But this is really important. Lower socioeconomic kids are most at risk, not only for SARS-CoV-2, but other outcomes as well. Crowding, because of the sorts of things that have been happening in societies that reduced immunization. They tend to have poorer mental health. They don't get screened as often for anything. They have poorer dental services. So you can see that there's this sort of spread out of things that put pressure on the health of kids. And they're having an important impact on the outcomes due to this pandemic as well. They have major impact on education because they're not going to school and those are in turn associated with poorer health. We know that reduced exercise doesn't help either. In some children at lower risk, but not at zero risk of severe disease, that varies around the world. Keeping children, especially young children, appropriately distanced, it's impossible. So close contact in schools is like close contact in a workplace or a bar, ideal conditions for spread. Children under 10 will be a smaller threat to parents and grandparents, but adolescents, as we just said, will be more like adults when it comes to spread. John, there's a reluctance in discussing Donald Trump, but it's almost unavoidable, isn't it, because of the status of the United States in the global infectious diseases world? But we have seen a bizarre dystopian pantomime playing out with Donald Trump apparently being infected by the virus, going to hospital, getting a cocktail. He's now describing as cures sent by God, Regeneron being one of them, but others as well. And apparently just about a week after his initial diagnosis, though that's a very ambiguous thing, He is now declaring himself non-infectious and going out to rallies. But we are seeing that whole performance thing going on with Donald Trump. And, of course, the White House uh, riddled with the virus now. So many have caught it within the White House. They relied, and this is the teaching point, I think, they relied on particular form of testing and very regular testing within the White House, but apparently no contact tracing, apparently no other actual preventive tactics to look after people within the White House, particularly the wearing of face masks, which culturally and ideologically was seen as something infradig within the White House itself. So what are the learning points that you're getting as an observant epidemiologist about that pantomime and Trump himself within the White House and within the executive government of the United States? The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is a a really nice journal that keeps reminding us about other threats in the world. That journal put out a piece that said, here are six or eight pictures from the recent White House event in the Roseless Garden. And every one of these illustrates exactly what you shouldn't be doing in an attempt to control this pandemic. So there was no distancing, there was no masking, there was no attempt to take due note of the way in which we should be behaving in the face of this. And that is writ 
small and large, across the government at the moment. They've been doing testing, it's true, and widespread testing makes good sense if the aim is to do surveillance. And repeated high-sensitivity testing is what's required to detect and monitor in in isolation and quarantine, especially if the community numbers are low and the desire is to keep it that way. So that's the sort of thing that we've been going on here. But it's not a single solve-all strategy. It's part of that whole spectrum of public health measures, distancing, masking, hand hygiene, keeping track of your movements, tracking and tracing contacts. There's something close to criminal not doing tracing out of the White House meetings. There are already two hours, three hours ago, the number was up to 34 known numbers in that out of that meeting in the White House. I imagine it's much higher than that, but they've already identified 34 people. The fact that all of those, a lot of those people have gone to other parts of the country and gone to gyms and gone on rallies and gone to their homes and gone to take their kids to school, all of those things are a massive problem. A recent report, two children of the Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, they've had infections pop up in the school of those children, both infected adults and other children. So talk about White House's incubator. It's an extraordinary business, isn't it? You spent many years, John, in the United States working at a very high level in the epidemiology area. And of course, the CDC and I guess the FDA, by extension, were seen during your time there as really important institutions in infectious diseases and in pharmaceuticals. We've seen the politicisation of those two amongst other institutions in the United States. Let's turn our attention firstly to the CDC. Describe how you saw the CDC as sort of a benchmark institution and how you see its politicisation now. CDC has been a massive force for good in the world. As we have developed diseases in various parts of the world, the CDC has been on the front line. It was a key player in the eradication of smallpox in the world. It's been a major place for knowledge and understanding and dissemination of knowledge and understanding, not just in the United States, but the worldwide, uh, on Zika, on Ebola, on measles, etc. The CDC has been not just a US national treasure, which it has been. It's an international treasure. It's a major resource for the whole world. Suddenly, people are worried that they're not getting truthful information out of the CDC. A lot of things have been politicized. And that's a harsh blow to a key piece of the world's infrastructure in the handling of pandemic and epidemic disease. And the FDA, similarly, because they have tied into the what's now been called the emergency approval of a vaccine. And there we can cast our eyes to Russia and to China as well, where we've got either totalitarian or very near in the Putin situation to totalitarian regimes. So we're seeing Trump himself and his officials trying to pressure the FDA into an emergency approval of a vaccine in the United States. That's going to have implications for all of us. The FDA similarly has been damaged, although I will say one cheerful piece of information is that the FDA managed to promulgate some particular regulations regarding the licensing of vaccines and did so essentially going around White House objections and insisting a trial had to be completed, but then another two months had to follow so we could see what the downstream consequences were, both for protection against the virus and safety of the vaccine. So they have actually 
managed, at least in some regard, to stand their proper ground. But they too are tarnished. Bill Fage described the CDC as having gone from gold to tarnished brass. And I would say the FDA is not quite that far down, but both of them are really important international institutions and both of them are damaged. He was a former director of the CDC. This letter here that both of us have read, he's writing a letter to Robert Redman, the current director of the CDC, and amongst other things he says to him, urging him to perhaps bell the cat on all this and get himself fired. It didn't happen, of course. He writes to uh, the current director of the CDC this, the White House has had no hesitation to blame and disgrace CDC you and state governors. They will blame you for the disaster. In six months, they have caused CDC to go from gold, as you said, from gold to tarnished brass. And it captures the the problem we're facing hugely. One just has to hope that after the elections this year and the installation of of a functional president in the United States, that there will be a rapid series of mea culpas out of those institutions and a series of nods to the rest of the world saying, we're sorry, but we're going to get ourselves back up to speed. We've almost reached the end of our third conversation, John, and inevitably I know that you knew that I was going to ask you this. Where are we going? What's the big outlook? The Spanish flu, of course, from 1918 and thereabouts still looms as our big reference point. What have you learned as an epidemiologist and one that's really been following the research literature and all the events unfolding? Where are we at? The pandemic, as I see it, just as a layperson, seems to be in full swing. We're seeing all the new upsurges. We look at India. You've talked about Africa, which does have some optimistic points. Here in Australia and New Zealand, we seem to be standing aside a little from the general trend, and we can be thankful for that. But globally, the pandemic is in full swing, isn't it? Do you agree with that? And also, what is the outlook? The pandemic is in full swing and the number of cases is rising. But it's interesting to note that the mortality is falling. It's not clear yet why that is true. It may be that it's just a blip or it may be that there's something important and interesting going on. But our response has to be in our part of the world because we can't control anything else. Indeed, all we can do is try and influence it in our part of the world. Given that it is possible to go for elimination, and we've taken that line in in New Zealand, and pretty much that's what's going on in Australia, it's the only rational course. In the absence of other countries taking that step, and there are others, of course, who have, until we have a vaccine, the number of cases will rise. The total number of deaths will continue to rise, even if the rate at which they accumulate falls. There'll be a huge burden on the healthcare system, especially on healthcare workers. There'll be a massive problem with older individuals, sicker individuals. The virus will persist. It's not seasonally variable as the influenza viruses are. We've seen that. We've had the Northern Hemisphere pandemic and we've got the Southern Hemisphere. As I've noted at an earlier point, and I Don't know whether this is a real problem or not, but it might even find a second home in companion animals from which it might continue to reinfect human populations. We need a vaccine. We are all waiting for a vaccine. In the meantime, we need elimination 
and we need the leadership that will give us elimination. As a final dystopian note then, you just referred to companion animals. Let's go back to the whole idea that you and I discussed in earlier podcast about the source of this, which is still a bit of a mystery. But are other viruses like this one lurking there in animals, wild animals around the world, animals closer to us? You talked about companion animals. This particular infectious and deadly virus is not going to just be an outlier, is it? There are going to be other viruses like this. I'm afraid that's true. For reasons that have to do with our continued intrusion onto the wild space of animals, and as we continue to intrude in the wild space of animals, they will transfer some viruses. We will have a virus that arrives and finds a home in us because it mutates just enough to survive in us. That's what we see happening with influenza viruses. That's what we've seen happen with this one. There's a science fiction writer named William Gibson, who's a fabulous viewer of the near future. And in several of his books now, he talks about the jackpot. And what he's talking about is not just one pandemic, but a series of them occurring over a very short period of time in in human history. Now, he's not a seer, he's not a prophet, but he is a very good observer of the world and a very good writer. It seems to me that there's a serious risk that this pandemic could well just be the harbinger of other things to come. Well, I wish we could finish this conversation and our three conversations on a jolly happy note, John Potter, but no, we can't because it's real and it's happening and it's in many ways unprecedented globally. Of course, we've got the Spanish flu reference, but this is an extraordinary challenge for us here in Australia, for you in New Zealand, but for the whole globe. Yes, we will watch the coming USA election. It's an important one. It's a consequential one on a whole lot of levels, but certainly consequential for this particular viral pandemic. But we do appreciate your assiduous attention to the detail over the last uh, three podcasts. Thank you so much and all the good information you've given us and given us so much to think about. John, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. It's been a real honour to be here. New Zealand-based epidemiologist Professor John Potter. You can learn more about John and his research in the on-screen text with this podcast, plus many useful links to good quality coronavirus information, and we'll update those as new research emerges and pandemic events occur. All three Pandemic Primer podcasts are now available for your listening. In total, three hours of information-rich audio journalism. We do hope it adds to your understanding of the virus itself and the scope and reach of the pandemic and enriches your consumption of all the other information in general journalism, specialist scientific research and the inevitable polemics and propaganda abounding in our crowded mediascape. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.